Ruth 1, and we'll read the first five verses from Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. <laughs> they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Well, good morning. Can you hear me? We got a long stretch going this morning. Don't feel bad about moving out of the sun if it happens to come your way. Run if the sprinklers come on. I'm hoping they don't, but you never know. And enjoy the breeze. Well, it's good to be together this morning and to be in the book of Ruth. We started last week with some uh, little bit of background info. If you were here, um, we remember, we, well, we looked at several things. Ruth was written to be a good story. Sit down and read the whole thing. Maybe some of you did that. I hope you did. And it's beyond a good story, isn't it? For us, it's the truth of God. Um, I, I read something that reminded me that even stories in the scripture were written for transformation. God was behind those stories. The ultimate purpose in the Bible, the scripture, story or otherwise, is for transformation in our lives. And that's why we need the scripture. That's why we come together. That's why we need God's continued work. Thanks to these sound guys, too. They put in a bunch of work setting up this morning. We looked at a quick overview of the book of Ruth, and we'll look at an outline here in a minute this morning. We learned that the the book of Ruth was during the time of the judges, and we'll see that in our text um, that Steve read. Remember that Israel was delivered from Egypt under Moses, and when they finally reached the promised land after unbelief and, and wandering in the desert and all that, they were under Joshua. Joshua dies and moral decay creeps in, immorality, corruption. And the story of Ruth stands out in that backdrop, that backdrop of difficulty, of hard times, of disobedience. We looked at who the author was and we didn't find much. There's not, we don't know who wrote it. We know it's written well. And we also know that the Holy Spirit is behind the writing of Ruth. As far as when Ruth was written, there's different theories. It was written after it took place, probably by quite a bit. Uh, maybe it was 600 years after, after the Israelites came back from being in exile. Or maybe it was closer, even to the point of under the reigns of David and Solomon, David or Solomon. That would have been closer to 200 years after Ruth took place. But we need to picture, as I mentioned last week, whenever it was written, it was written by someone in Israel with the hand of God behind them. The writing of the story was there to encourage, to challenge, and to stimulate the people to think about God's ways, to work out God's principles in their lives and their context. Now, in the case of Israel, this was a story in their own history 
So it meant something, something to them. It was their ancestry. Whoever wrote Ruth had purposes in mind. We talked about a few of these last week. We won't get into those right now. But as we look at purpose, that brings us to some of the different themes in the book of Ruth. And what we're trying to do is find those themes and work our way toward good theological principles. Why theological principles? Because that's what guides our lives. That's what guides our thinking, shapes our worldview, and teaches us how to live right now, even today. Let's pray again as we get into the first few verses of Ruth. Father, thank you that you've given us this special book, a unique book, and it's a unique time together. We won't, we won't see everything here. We're not going to do this perfectly, but I do pray that your truth would emerge from these verses this morning and from our time together, that you would be honored and that we would learn a few things in order to further our walk with you and our interaction with each other and our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Steve said, there's no overhead, obviously. You probably, hopefully you have a half sheet of paper there. There may be a few extras if you don't up here. Um, Looks something like that. On the left side of that paper, you, I've put um, a, a simple outline for Ruth, and that's there just to help us as we go through the whole book. Um, you'll see a four-act drama. That's not my idea. That's someone else's idea. But you can break Ruth into four acts if, as, as if it were a drama, and those are basically following your chapters. You also have a conclusion at the end um, of those four acts, and you have a introduction, an introduction at the beginning of those four acts, and that's where we're going to spend our time today is in the introduction, um, the first five verses. You can split that introduction into two parts. We're going to look at verses one and two to start with. So here you have, to begin with, and open your Bibles if you're not there, but you can, you can look at the words in the, verse, the first verse, in those days, during the days of... The message, the, if you've heard of the, the um, paraphrase, the message, it says, once upon a time. Now, when you read once upon a time, normally you think, here, here comes a fairy tale. But this isn't a fairy tale. This is during the days of the judges, an established time in Israel. So we're looking at nonfiction. The times of the judges, as we, we discussed briefly last week, is pre-monarch, that is, before the kings ruled Israel, before David and Saul and all those other guys. Um, Remember, the dating for the writing would have been probably during that time, but this was before their time. In Judges chapter 2, and this gives us a little flavor for for the the time of the judges, Judges 2, 16 and 17 says, The Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of their marauders, but they did not listen to their judges. This is talking about the, the nation of Israel. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods, bowing down to them. They quickly turned from the way of their ancestors who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. They did not do as their ancestors did. So then is when you have the judges raised up by God, mostly military leaders, to save Israel from these oppressive nations around them. This was God's mercy on them. They didn't deserve those leaders and that deliverance. But God raised them up. You remember some of them. Samson, Deborah, quite a few others there. Look at your scripture, verse 1. In those days, 
that is the days of the judges, there was a famine in the land. Now hang on there. If you're in the original audience, you hear that famine in the land terminology and you probably remember some things from the past. Maybe you do too. If you've read in Genesis, you remember that in Genesis 12, Abraham went to Egypt because there was a famine in the land. In Genesis 26, Isaac, Abraham's son, runs off to Philistia and tries to go to Egypt because there was a famine in the land. Further, you see Genesis 46, Jacob, Isaac's son, he does travel to Egypt because of a famine in the land, this time with God's blessing. The first two were not with God's blessing. They were running away because there was a famine in the land. Probably there was unbelief. You saw some of the outcome of their, in their lives. These incidents probably came to mind when the hearer of Ruth saw there's a famine in the land. The question should then arise, what should be the appropriate response to famine? We don't even know who's involved in the story, but we know there's a famine in the land. And there's some kind of response coming in that incident. Now, before we leave this problem of famine, remember Israel and God entered into a covenant, a a special relationship before they ever came to the land. Israel promised that they would obey God and God promised to bless them. If they didn't obey God, you remember what God promised to do? To curse them. The first curse that God would send upon them was foreign enemies to torment them. If they still continued in their rebellious ways, what would be the second curse? The land would cease to produce, leading to famine. That would be a death warrant for any of us, wouldn't it? Year after year of no production of the land. Listen to Leviticus 26 as we think about this idea of God's blessing and cursing. God says, but if after these things, that is defeat or, and rule by the enemies, you will still not obey me, I will proceed to discipline you with seven times for your sins. I will break down your strong pride. I will make your sky like iron and your land like bronze. It's pretty hard to plow bronze field. And your strength as you try to plow that will be used up for nothing. Your land will not yield its produce. The trees of the land will not bear their fruit. That's the curse that God promised. Now, it's very possible. The author didn't make this 100% clear. But this is why there was a famine in the land during the time of the judges. Their rebellion, their idolatry. Verse 1 also establishes a geographical context. Under pressure from this famine, a man, you see there, a man with his wife and two sons moved from Bethlehem. By the way, that's the Bethlehem in Judah, not to be confused with another town by the same name. You can see on your map there, and if you've got a pen, you need to fill this out. No Bethlehem is written on your map. Bethlehem is about six miles south of Jerusalem. Find Jerusalem and look a little bit south. And it says on your map, it says the hill country of Judah. Right about there would be the town of Bethlehem. You can make a mark there. This, of course, is the same town that David was from. 
And you remember Micah later prophesied that an eternal ruler would come from this town, this very place. And we know Jesus himself was born there in later times. So it's a significant town for Israel. It's a significant town for us. It's small. It's still there. You can go visit it right now. It looks a little different, but it's still there. So you see this family now left the fields of Bethlehem. We're we're in verse 1. And where did they go? To the land of Moab. It appears that this is a temporary thing. The way that it's worded there, they went there for a time or whatever it says. They were going to sojourn. They were going to wait out the famine, most likely. That was the idea. Now, do you see Moab on your map? It's to the right and a little bit down. So it's southeast of Bethlehem, probably. And you can trace this with your pencil. They probably went north around the Dead Sea, down through the the tribe of Reuben's territory and into Moab. Of course, Moab was a foreign nation, not one of the tribes of Israel. It seems that after this journey, they, they had the intention to return to the land of Israel someday. Now, that sounds good. That sounds noble. But in reality, there was a, a segment of shame and definitely danger involved in, in making this choice to go to Moab. The hearer and the reader, and that's us, but we also need to think about those original re- hearers Undoubtedly, those original hearers were thinking, now, wait a minute, was this a good idea? What's in the hearts of these folks? Where is their faith? I know there's a famine in the land, so you got to do something, but there's a lot of other things to consider here besides Moab. Well, we'll come back to that, but let's look at the family. We see them, we see them um, introduced in, in verse 2. We've seen the setting a little bit in the, in the time of the judges. We've looked at the geography, and now the author introduces this family to us. Elimelech, Naomi, and then their two sons, Malon and Chilion. Kind of weird names, but they rhyme. That's got to be worth something. They were Ephrathites. That, it's a little hard to know what Ephrathites means. Probably it's just a clan name, so it's further defining that Bethlehemite group. Um, and they were probably a great part of what occupied Bethlehem and maybe other places as well. It's interesting, though, and this is a bit of a side note, but that that Ephrathite name continues as a definition. It's not just Jews. It's not just Judah, the tribe of Judah, but it's from Bethlehem of Ephrathah that David comes, Jesse, his father, and then David, and then eventually Jesus comes from, what did Micah say? Bethlehem Ephrathah. You're small, but from you will come a ruler. And that establishes this motif pretty squarely in the book of Ruth. You see in verse 2 that Elimelech and his family settled in the fields of Moab. So they're foreigners. But they found a place apparently that had enough food to survive on. The word fields there is best translated fields and not the land of Moab. It's an interesting word that the author chooses to use, probably bringing farming and food into the picture as a continuous element that we're going to see all the way through the story. So we're looking at the intro of the book of Ruth, right? Verses 1 and 2. This, after verse 5, are four dramatic acts that will follow. We'll get into those in the weeks to come. But the second part of this introduction, verses 3, 4, and 5, see it there in your scripture. 
This could very appropriately be titled Naomi's Emptying. All of a sudden, the focus is on Naomi. Everything surrounds her in these three verses. And these three verses take up about 10 years of life. And like I said, everything begins and ends with her in these verses. First in verse 3, what do you see? Naomi's husband died. Well, why did he die? Again, the author leaves out all kinds of juicy stuff that would be nice to know. Was he old? Was he just, did he, was it his time? Well, it's not real likely that he was real old, but it's possible. Was this a disciplinary measure from God? Well, we don't know that either. That's possible. But look at the verse. It makes it clear, this is verse 3, it makes it pretty pretty obvious in the way that it's worded that at least Naomi had her two sons. Not only his family and comfort and all that in this hard, hard time of losing her husband, but to care for her as she ages. And most importantly, catch this, most importantly, to carry on the family line, the lineage. That all is placed as a ray of hope in this, this verse. And before we move on, we need to remember, or, or we need to try to wrap our minds around the idea, the great emphasis that's placed in Scripture in general, but especially in this, this time, that's placed upon the family name, carrying on the family line. It was a great shame to not have children because your line ended, and especially you wanted sons to carry on the family name. Not only would an Israelite family lose their, their lineage, their name, but they would lose their property. Everything's done. Their, their name is wiped out. Well, and this is not just a simple cultural idea, but God had placed laws in place, put laws in place under the law of Moses that when a, uh, a, pers- a widow husband died, her brother was to marry that widow with the express purpose of carrying on his brother's line. You see that um, in, in s- chapters surrounding the law of Moses there. Um, this was a big deal to the Israelites, this family lineage, carrying that on. Large families were a blessing from God. Small no, or, or barrenness was considered a curse. It was, it was not a good thing. Now, for us today, we don't relate exactly to that, do we? We're not under that covenant. That's a, not, a, not a problem. But it's a little hard for us to grasp what Naomi would be feeling um, as she loses her husband and then, as you see in a minute, the rest of her family. But we need to put that in our heads. It's an extremely important part of Jewish life and then of our story right here. Remember, as an example, beyond Ruth, remember Jacob's second wife, Rachel. She was barren from the Lord. She, was, she could have no children. She became jealous of her, her, Jacob's other wife and his, her children. And she cried out to Jacob and said, Give me children or I'll die. Well, that was not because she liked babies or she wanted a few kids in the house. That was because her line was going to end if she didn't have, her name was going to end if she didn't have children. So with this in mind, we move on and we look at verse 4. The sons married Moabite women. Now wait a minute. Moabite women. Was that a good idea? Eyebrows maybe should raise as you hear that. 
The sons married foreigners. Generally speaking, inclusion of foreigners was, was prohibited into the families of Israel. Now, this wasn't because God hated foreigners and prejud- he was prejudiced against them, but it was because Israel was to keep themselves pure. We have plenty of examples of Israel marrying other nation, women from other nations and idolatry comes right into the, into the family and into the line. Well, at least this is suspect. It's pushing God's law when these men marry Moabite women. The women are introduced. You see there Orpah and Ruth. And you, it, it becomes evident that they have lived in Moab for 10 years. Does that sound like they, they, that it was temporary? Again, we're speculating a little bit, but maybe they had settled in Moab. You also see another theme introduced kind of quietly. There's no children from these marriages that have been for years now. Verse 5. Abruptly, we learn that both sons up and die. Well, why is that? Again, we don't know, do we? Were their actions unfaithful and God saw fit to bring their lives to an early conclusion? That's speculation, but it's possible. In the latter half of verse 5, if you didn't come to the conclusion on your own, look what it says. It says, The woman was left without her two children and without her husband. There you have the sorrowful scene set, laid open in a pretty dramatic way. Now, this sounds devastating, doesn't it? Even today, if we had... Uh, someone in our midst with this situation, we would pity that person. We would reach out to that person. That would be very, very difficult. No, Lost their spouse, lost all their children. But how much worse, and this is what we need to get a feel for, how much worse for Naomi in this time period, not just because there was no government provision, no social security or health care for her, but because her identity is probably nothing more at this point than a foreign woman settled in a field and she has lost all hope of progeny all hope of heirs to continue on in her family name nothing's left except two Moabite daughter-in-laws daughters-in-law life seems like a loss now this is where we're going to leave Naomi for today but this is not where God leaves her keep that in mind I think in light of the introduction to Ruth, I want to think about this phrase for a few minutes. The phrase is, and you can fill in a couple of the words, a couple of the key words that we're going to look at, untiringly cling to God and then rest in Him. Untiringly cling to God and then rest in Him. Consider that move that Elimelech made to Moab. Ironically, he moved from Bethlehem, which is literally the house of bread, to the nation that wouldn't give bread and water. They were cursed because they wouldn't, have, they wouldn't give bread and water to Israel when Israel passed by in their exodus. You see Moab, you, you, you've got it on your map there, southeast or so of Bethlehem. Moab had a history, and this is what we need to know. Moab had a history of being Israel's enemy. Particularly if you were one of Israel who trusted a man or woman in Israel who trusted God, who believed God. Moab was named after the man, Moab, who fathered the nation. 
This man was the product of Lot and the incestuous relationship he had with his daughter. There's a problem right there, a lack of trust in God that then led to this neighboring enemy nation. But there's more than that. Remember, I I, I just mentioned Israel after coming out, they met with resistance and connivance from this land of Moab. Do you remember Balaam? Balaam was hired by the Moabites to curse Israel because Israel or because Moab was afraid of Israel and hated Israel. Well, God in his mercy curtailed Balaam's curses, but Moab continued this quest to ruin Israel and they lured them into sexual immorality and then into idolatry, away from God. As you continue down the course of this this relationship, Moab and Israel, even in the book of Judges chapter 3, there's the king of Eglon, that was um, against Israel, and he was the king of Moab, who was an enemy of Israel. God actually used one of the judges to kill him. Well, this gives you a flavor of the relationship, and it makes you wonder about the faith of Elimelech and his family. Now, we're, we're doing a little bit of speculating, I'll be honest with you, because this isn't explicitly said in the scripture, but we can think this way with an open mind. The hearer, the reader, should have serious question marks as we look at the passage that we just looked at. Why are they leaving home at all? And then why to Moab? This family was in a covenant relationship with God, but it doesn't appear that that was something they took seriously. Or not very seriously. According to God, the proper response to divine judgment, which in this case looks like famine in the land, was to humble yourself. This is the proper response. Humble yourself. Seek God. Plead for mercy. Repent. Ask him to heal your land. That's what a righteous Israelite should have been about. Well, it seemed that Elimelech designed his own response. He decided to take things into his own hands, try his fortune in Moab. At least we can say that questions should arise when you read that. Maybe there's apathy. I think there's unbelief. It's pretty hard to believe, at very least, that this was a wise choice for them to move to Moab. Now, think about that idea. As we come to our context, there's lots of differences, isn't there, between us and Elimelech and Naomi. But we can take a lesson, and that comes in in that phrase that I gave you, untiringly cling to God. We face things in our lives, testing, trials, the famines, if you will, of life can tempt us to take things into our own hands. Consider for yourself, do you have any famines in your life? Testings. And what are you going to do with those? Now, as we think about these testings and hard things and maybe they're small, maybe they're not so small. I'm all for, for responsibility. We need to take action at times, wise action. We need to be careful to take responsibility. But in all of those actions and all of our thinking, this should come under faith, under faith in God. And that's why we come to that word clinging. Clinging to God, clinging to his promises, clinging to his guidance as primary. What about frustrations? 
exasperations in your relationships or in your circumstances of any sort. You, I, I'm sure you can think of a few things. Maybe you just want to do something. You just want to say something. You want to make a knee-jerk decision. Run. Fight. I'm going to suggest that we just need to hang on. We need to wait. We need to go to our knees, humble ourselves and seek the Lord. Untiringly cling to the Lord. Have you ever had a little kid who's fearful and they cling on to you as the parent or the grandparent or, or guardian, whatever? That little kid has every muscle wrapped around you. They will not let go. They're very difficult to pull off. That's clinging. When I say untiringly, I mean, and you can fill these words out on your page there, I mean persistently cling to God. I mean adamantly cling. I mean stubbornly, even stubbornly hang on to God. Grip your faith with a death grip. even though there might be famine in the land. Listen to this story of a dog named Hachiko. Hachiko was born in 1923 on a farm in Japan. In 1924, a professor in the agricultural department at the Tokyo Imperial University took Hachiko as a pet and brought him to live in Tokyo. The professor would commute daily to work and Hachiko would leave the house to greet him at the end of each day at the nearby train station. The pair continued the daily routine for over a year until in 1925 when the professor did not return. He had suffered a cerebral hemorrhage while he was giving a lecture to his class, and he died without ever returning to the train station in which Hachiko waited. Each day for the next nine years, Nine months and 15 days, Hachiko awaited his master's return, appearing precisely when the train was due at the station. Hachiko attracted the attention of other commuters as well as one of the professor's former students. He returned frequently to visit Hachiko, and over the years, he published several articles about the dog's remarkable loyalty. In 1932, one of the articles placed the dog in the national spotlight. Hachiko became a national sensation. His faithfulness to his master's memory impressed the people of Japan. Hachiko died in 1935, and his body was found on the street near the train station. Even today, bronze statues commemorate the existence of this faithful dog. Think about that in relation to this idea of untiringly clinging. Hachiko untiringly clung to his hope. He spent most of his life clinging to a hope. Nothing changed in his favor, but he stayed in the land. He clung. This brings us to that second part of the introduction, those five verses, that perfect picture of Naomi's plight. I should say that perfect picture of sorrow of Naomi's plight. It's a pretty good picture of sorrow. The choice was made to run to Moab. There's disaster and there's grievance, and here we find her. 
She's as good as lost. Listen to what Robert Hubbard has to say about Naomi at this point in her life. Naomi's fate is indeed bitter. As a widow, she lacks the provision and protection of her husband in a male-dominated ancient society. Further, her age and poverty effectively seal off three options normally open to a widow. In view of the passage of time implied by the story, her parents may be dead. If so, she would not be able to return to her father's house like an ordinary young widow. Remarriage, even a Leverite one, which is the one I was talking about, the brother marrying a widow, seems improbable because she is probably beyond childbearing years. She cannot support herself by some trade because she has none, and besides, women simply did not do that in those days. Worse yet, she is an aged widow without children, the worst fate for an Israelite woman. So with Sarah, Hannah, and Elizabeth, she suffers the painful shame of childlessness. childlessness. Further, she faces her declining years with no children to care for her and no grandchildren to cheer her spirits. Now, before we jump to the end of the story, we have that advantage. But at this point, leave that off. We're left wondering, why is this? Why is this? What is the answer to the reason that she finds herself at the bottom Is this God's discipline to help her, to help her turn to him and see him again? That's possible. We should also keep in mind the simple fact that bad things happen to good people. Maybe you've felt like Naomi. Maybe you haven't lost everything like she had, but do you ever feel like God has opposed you? even afflicted you. Naomi admits later on in chapter 1, toward the end, that she has become bitter under God's hand because of those things. God has afflicted her. God has oppressed her is what her feeling is. The author here in verse 5 puts very clear, crisp terms to it, and he says her life has been emptied. Well, what about us? Perhaps it's just the fears and the anxieties, the things of life that begin to empty you, to crush you even. Or maybe it's more significant things, hardships, disasters, whatever it might be, trouble. Well, we could feel like Naomi. I think there's two reasons we could feel like Naomi. One is the consequence of unbelief. It's the consequence of sin, disobedience. Oftentimes, this is God's loving discipline that comes to bring us to him. Sometimes that discipline feels like opposition. It feels like affliction. But God is not opposed to us. God is not opposed to us. He wants our heart. And he means to guide us to him. The punishment for our sins has been taken on the cross. Jesus took care of that. This is a very different thing. We're talking about God's discipline because he loves us. Hebrews 12, 7 says, Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? So don't be afraid of discipline. Some of the trials we face in life, it's God's loving discipline. We could also feel like Naomi... And there's some crossover here, but sometimes we face issues in life that are not necessarily 
consequences of our unbelief or our sin. They're just the trial in, because of the world we live in due to the, the sin in society, the fallen nature of our world. By the way, this is not out of God's control either, though. But it's part of our existence for now. But these two are here to teach us. James says, Consider it great joy, my brothers and my sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith, that's what we're seeing in Naomi in a big way, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Untiringly cling to God and then rest in Him. Then rest in Him. If you find yourself here in some way, the trials, the troubles, the emptying, this is a great opportunity to rest in the Lord. Now you could say that idea of rest, that's the same as faith. I think you'd be right. We're talking about resting, about trusting. Clinging to God with all of your strength and then resting in his care. We don't know what God does, what he knows. We rest in his sovereignty, in his overall plan, in his purpose. If you've read through the book of Ruth just recently, you realize that there is much more to happen. His overall plan, his purpose. He has one. Remember, he's from beginning to end. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. Sometimes we need to just think beyond ourselves. We need to trust and rest in him for the unknown that's beyond us. We, there's no way we can understand all that. And yet rest in him because he does care for our details too. David says in 2 Samuel 22, God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is pure. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Untiringly cling to God and then rest in him. When I say resting in the Lord, you could expand that, and you've got a few lines there if you want to fill them out. First, I think it means trusting. It means seeking Him. It means meditating. It means wanting Him. You could just say simply, staying with Him. Don't run. Don't fight. Stay. Rest in Him. Has anybody ever been to Niagara Falls? Good, a few of you. I've never been. But if you've been there, perhaps you've heard of something called the Cave of the Winds. Currently, it's a tourist attraction that takes people down on a series of wooden steps and platforms to the bottom of the American Falls, where you can experience the falls up close, get good and wet. Historically, though, the Cave of the Winds was actually a cave. A cave discovered in 1834 behind Bridal Veil Falls there in Niagara Falls formed by a great rock overhang. The cave was originally huge, 130 feet high, 100 feet wide, and 30 feet deep. Tours began in 1841 where the visitor could descend a rope ladder and get, go into the cave and experience being under the falls and behind the falls, though right next to the falls. Eventually, better ladders were, were installed and then even an elevator. Um, but th throughout the years, 
it was a popular place to visit because of that powerful cascade of water that one could stand close to. You can still experience that on the boardwalk below to some degree. Um, and in, in that cave was produced some very strong wind that would blow across the visitor. The cave was significantly damaged in 1920, and it was then that most of the tourist activity moved to that new system of stairs and boardwalks. In 1955, the original cave again had a major rock slide and was finished off by dynamite. But if you, if you were one of those early tourists, I don't think anybody here was, but you would stand underneath that falls and right beside the rushing torrent of water, the wind trying to push you around, the noise ringing in your ears. The falls was a 180-foot vertical drop, 3,160 tons of water falling over that per second. It looks and it might feel pretty intimidating, dangerous, even considering death as you peer into that wall of water. But here's the point I kept thinking about. If you rest in the cave, you're absolutely safe. You're fine. If you stay put, if you let the wind blow, you let the noise increase, the water crash, but you stay put, if you rest in the cave, it's here that you're 100% safe untiringly cling to God and then rest in Him. Whatever it is you face or you feel or you might yet face or you might yet feel, stubbornly cling to God. Don't run and commit to Him and then rest. Visit the safety of that cave and rest in Him. Let's pray together. Matt, would you and the team come up for a final chorus? Father God, thank you that you've given us Ruth. We trust that as we kind of read between the lines a little bit this morning and we see what's going on with Elimelech's family and this move, we can take a lesson here. And we're, we're going to see, and as we, so, as we probably know, that the purpose is so great and so grand, it's beyond anything we can consider anything Naomi can ever imagine. And as we are in that place of hardship, when there's famine in the land, I pray, God, that we would rest in you, that we would truly just sit in the cave and not let the water, the danger, sink into our heads. I pray that we would cling to you untiringly, that we would be like the dog that just kept coming back because it's the right thing to do. It's the thing we've committed to. Thank you, God, that you are faithful. You will never let us go. Just pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.